Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Today we turn back to the election, election that is now just days away, and we try out our prognosticating skills. No, we are not going to speculate on the outcome of the race for the White House or the Senate races. Look, there is plenty of that content out there in podcast land, so I encourage you to go look for it. Instead, we wanted to go back to the long discussions we've had on both the Biden plan and the Trump plan and ask an important question, a question that we get asked all the time. Which of these proposals might come first, which might come later, and which might not come at all? And to be clear, we don't ask this by way of saying what we think should happen or what we want to happen. As we said before, that's just not what we do. Instead, we try and answer the question based upon the bits of information we do know, what the legislative calendar looks like, what the competing priorities might be, what the procedural challenges are, and so on. So yes, we are speculating a bit, but I'd argue it's at least informed speculation. So let's just start with the Biden plan, and Tom, let me start with you. We've talked about the Biden plan so much. We've talked about the business proposals. We've talked about the individual proposals. So the first question is, do you think that in a scenario where we've got a Biden presidency coupled with a democratically controlled Congress, do you think in that scenario that a tax bill comes right out of the gate or do you think it comes later? And if it does come right out of the gate, what do you think's in it? I'm glad you asked the question that way because I think it's good to provide a little perspective. Uh, tax is an important issue for the Democrats should they get control of things, but it's not the highest priority. I think if there is Democratic control, you know, what we're going to see first out of the box is another COVID relief bill of some sort. Uh, depending on what they do between now and the end of the year, there'll still be more to do. That could have some tax elements in it, like the employee retention tax credit and maybe a child credit, but that's about it. Also ahead of taxes, I think will clearly be a, an electoral reform bill. They're already drafting or have already drafted that they're going to call H.R. 1, uh, John Lewis electoral reform bill. They also may have to address health care, depending on what the Supreme Court decides uh, next month about the ACA. There are workforce issues, there are immigration issues, climate change issues. There are all sorts of other things that may intervene. But that said, uh, taxes is clearly an important issue. And the campaign headline has been the corporate rate, increasing the corporate rate to 28 percent. And Biden's been very specific about that. But doing that brings a lot with it. You can't just increase the U.S. corporate rate without addressing the international side. Otherwise, you're just going to drive business, potentially drive business offshore, which means you've got to look at the taxation of foreign earnings of U.S. multinationals. And if you increase tax there, then you've got to worry about inversions. And that brings in at least a proposal that Biden has for a 10% investment tax credit for investment in U.S. plant equipment and maybe for IP as well. So that brings in a lot just on the corporate side. If you address corporations, then, you know, you've also got the alternative forms of investment that you might drive. That implicates the Section 199A deduction, carried interest potentially, like-kind exchanges. You know, all that's on the business side. And once you've dragged that in, and then the question becomes whether they stop there or go on to do the things they want to do on the individual side as well, which, you know, include increasing the top rate. And capital gains, all that means potentially a big bill sometime in maybe in 2021, 
but maybe later in the year, both because of the other priorities and, and because of just the complexity and political deals you have to make to put together a big package like that. Let me challenge you a little bit on that, because I hear what you're saying. That all makes sense. But there's the first question I think we have to answer, and we tried to answer it long ago in an episode we did, which is whether or not we have a filibuster rule or not. So if we've got the filibuster still in place, then we're probably looking at a budget reconciliation-driven vehicle, which I agree with you, probably results in a large tax package probably later in the year. But if we don't have budget reconciliation, don't you think that a democratically controlled Congress would be freed of having to do this in one bold stroke and then could bring in a bunch of tax bills as we go throughout the year? And if that's true, do you really think that the corporate thing is the first thing they would come to? Because I, I kind of had in my mind that maybe the first thing that they would do is when they needed a revenue offset for another priority, including some of the things you talked about, Tom, they might come back to, for example, raising the rate on ordinary income from 37 to 39.6% as maybe one of the very first things that they might do. Do you just agree with that? That's certainly a possibility. It's not what they've talked about most frequently during the campaign, which has been the corporate rate. So that does put a lot of pressure on them to actually act in that area. But there's pressure to act in other areas as well. It is possible they could split up the individual side, which might match up if you did an increase in the top rate. You combine that with changes in capital gains, probably backed up by taxation of capital gains at death and combine that with income tax cuts aimed at the lower end of the income spectrum, which would be things like the EITC or refundable child credits. That is possible that they could split it up that way, especially if things start to get too complicated. Well, you made a fair point, which is, look, even if we don't have the filibuster and therefore we aren't, you know, if, if we find it, the Congress is not bound by the rules of the budget reconciliation process and therefore having to do one massive bill, it's still not that easy to break these things into pieces because they're all interrelated. As you say, if the corporate rate is increased, then you probably have to do something with the foreign minimum tax rate. And once you do something with the foreign minimum tax rate, you have to do something to tighten up the possibility of inversions or other base erosion measures. And then what about all the pass-through businesses? So you're Right. It's not so quite so simple as just saying, we'll do these things one at a time as we need them, that they all sort of get interrelated at some point. And it's a, it's a very fair point. Exactly. All right, Jan, let's come back to you then. Okay, so that was the Biden scenario. Let's flip it at the other scenario. We have a second Trump term. And I'll leave it to you to sort out who controls Congress. I mean, I think it's safe to say that most people feel extremely confident that the House is going to stay in Democratic hands, but the Senate is less clear. What do you think plays out in this second Trump term with a divided Congress. You know, we've been talking about the Biden plan so much, and a lot of people have asked, well, what if Trump wins re-election? And there haven't been as many new tax policy proposals in the Trump plan. But, you know, the one thing that is a campaign priority has been to kind of hold together the TCJA, which was the biggest legislative achievement for the current administration. So even if you do have a divided government, I would think that there are just some things that are baked in to the current code that would necessarily have to be addressed. And you kind of see this recurring theme where, you know, the Trump campaign isn't talking about completely new proposals. He's talking about existing proposals and potentially expanding them. For instance, the one thing that, you know, you've been hearing a lot on the campaign trail is to make permanent or to expand middle-class tax cuts. So as we know, the TCJA, the individual portion of the TCJA expires. Not anytime soon, but they will expire. 
at the end of 2025, so effective in 2026. So I think that would be a top priority. Making those permanent, even if you do have split government, I mean, query whether or not you would have a lot of trouble with negative votes, especially in the Senate, in rejecting the extension of middle class tax cuts. Or, I mean, this is something that could even be coupled with an expansion of the child tax credit, which is an identified priority of the House Democrats. So it's really going to depend on whether or not the Senate stays under Republican control or whether or not it flips will really dictate the art of the doable. Right now, we're looking at five potential extenders, expiring provisions that will have to be addressed no matter who's in office, right? Whether it's a Biden administration or a Trump administration, those three expiring CARES Act provisions, the loosening of 163J, the five-year NOL carryback, and the suspension of this 80% taxable income limit, and the excess loss suspension that kicks back in. Those are three items that are going to kick in at the beginning of the year, right? So Congress will have to decide either through action or inaction whether or not those remain. The next ones that are up are the following year, right? That's well within the four-year term of the administration. We have 163J moves from EBITDA to EBIT. And we have R&E amortization. They both kick in in 2022. So even if there isn't you know, new policy being created, there will have to be an administration, and, and in this case, this you know the question was about the Trump administration, they would have to address these issues, right? And all signs are that there would be a push to extend those CARES Act provisions and definitely to either make permanent or extend the um, 163J and the RNE amortization provisions. So if I, I followed what you said, you know, you think if we had a second term term relatively early on, we're going to have to come to this question, what to do about the expiring CARES Act provisions. Some of them, especially the loss carry back ones, are obviously more controversial uh, than others. It's been, they've proven to be quite controversial even this year with Democrats being opposed to them, but something that will have to be dealt with one way or the other. And then you could come back to the TCJA provisions that are coming up really fast. Hard to believe that we're already coming up on the expiration of these things because we've been looking at them ever since TCJA was passed. These things are, and I would add one to what you said, you mentioned 163J and you mentioned 174, the R&E. Let's add bonus depreciation to that. Uh, Right. The phase down of that, I think it's a look too. So these are the kind of things you probably get more quickly in a second Trump term that they would be coming to on taxes. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's right. And one of the pol- the new policy issues, which is really an expansion of existing policy that the Trump campaign has specifically mentioned, is expanding opportunity zones. The way that it's been cast is kind of more of a trying to find an opening for expansion of ozones within a COVID relief bill, right? And there's been specific talk about it. And in particular, because the opportunity zones can be used to address disparities, there has been a disparate impact on minority communities. So this is something that the campaign has talked about as a tool to address some of those COVID-related disparities and economic disparities that could potentially make it into a COVID relief bill if one were to be negotiated. That's a good one. That's a good one. Not one that a lot of people are talking about. So that's one to keep an eye on. All right. That's us trying to speculate in a Biden or a Trump administration, how they would prioritize these tax items. Let's go back to the Biden administration with the democratically controlled Congress. We've spent a lot of time talking about what's in the Biden plan or what some of the other priorities might be. Which ones do you think, I'm not saying won't happen, but which ones do you think will happen later? You know, they're going to take longer to do, maybe not a 2021 thing that might have to just sort of wait for some future point. Is there anything that's obvious to you when you look at the calendar or sort of the nature of 
of those proposals that makes you think that they're probably later, not sooner? Well, certainly some of the th- same things that Jen mentioned. Regardless of who's in control, the change, the beginning of expensing phase down in 2022, the change in the cap on the interest deduction, amortization of R&D, those are all things that the Democrats are going to have to address, too, if they come in. And, you know, so they'll be looked more favorably on some than others. There's, you know, some sympathy on the Democratic side for expensing. So they may be inclined to stretch that out or, or even make it permanent. There's a lot of bipartisan support for continuing to expense R&D. I don't think anyone thinks R&D amortization is a great idea. So that's something else the Democrats could get behind. And then, you know, sort of longer term, you have those bracket changes that take place after 2025. The Democrats are certainly at some point going to want to address those changes and certainly at the lower end of the income spectrum uh, may be inclined to continue them. They can find a way to offset the cost. The other longer term thing, a slightly longer term thing at least, that the Democrats have been talking about is raising the cap on the payroll tax. And that would be in connection with expanding Social Security, lowering the retirement age, increasing benefits, all sorts of proposals that they have that they need to offset in addition to the deficits in the trust fund. That'll take them longer to put together, but that's something else uh, that's clearly on their agenda longer term. Within the Biden plan itself, as we have talked about it, do you think then that the bulk of those things, and there's a lot in there, right, the capital gains, you know, the estate tax changes, ordinary income rate, you know, all those things, do you think that is then going to be a push for a 2021 exercise, or do you think some of those things will fall into 2022 and beyond? Clearly, one of the things that's going to be a concern trying to do tax increases, which they're talking about for the most part is the state of the economy in 2021 and and even beyond into 2022 and 2023, what effect those changes might have on an economy that's in recession. And to a large extent, that's going to be driven by what they're coupled with. If you increase taxes on one person and you reduce taxes on another person on a revenue-neutral basis, it could have no effect or even a positive effect on the economy. If you use some of the revenue that you're raising in taxes for infrastructure spending, that could also have a positive macroeconomic impact that offsets some of the negative impact. So, you know, how this is all put together will make a difference and may make a difference in timing as well. But it's also complicated and trying to sell it is also complicated. So all those things may push this at least late into 2021 and potentially even into 2022. It's such a good point, Tom, that the economy is this variable that we just can't fully predict yet, and it could really have important implications for what democratically controlled Congress and White House would pursue in terms of tax measures. Obviously, we had good news on GDP this week, but it doesn't mean we are out of the woods. We've got a long way to go. So it's an interesting question as to whether or not Democrats would feel comfortable raising taxes in that. But as you also said, we're only looking at half of the equation, and you can't really answer that without looking at the whole equation, which is, yes, Raising taxes in a vacuum, sure, there's political pushback on that. That's never easy to do. But they're not going to raise taxes in a vacuum. They're always going to raise taxes, presumably, to raise revenue to pay for something else. Unless we know what the something else is, you know, we're trying to solve for X here. Unless we know what X is, it's really hard to understand how the full equation works. And so, again, this is why, what you know, doing this is always so complicated. And we're just going to have to see how the economy plays out. And then what's the on the other side of the bill that is getting paid for by the tax increases that you've sort of hinted at. So that's something we'll look for now. Okay then, Jen, 
Let's come to you then. You know, we talked about what might be the longer term or aspirational things on the Democratic side. In a second Trump term, we talk about what the president has talked about as his objectives. Are there things that are obvious to you that may be harder to do or longer term things in a second Trump term? There aren't a whole lot of new policy shifts that are being pushed. But the one thing that is going to be hard to do is anything related to the TCJA. Right, the TCJA was a very polarizing bill. They received zero Democrat votes. So that's going to be an issue. And we know that even an extension or a permanence of extending those individual tax cuts is going to be hard to do because of their association with the TCJA. And, you know, some of the other items that are kind of further down the horizon include the scheduled increases in some of those international tax rates, like the guilty rate, the beat rate, the FDII rate, and, you know, 199 Cap A. That is a provision that the administration has been touting very regularly, right? The 199 Cap A, the um, pass-through deduction, and that is also set to expire with those individual provisions. So this is kind of viewed as whether or not the association with the TCJA will make it extremely difficult to make any of those policy priorities permanent or even for simple extensions. Right, in a, in a divided Congress anyway, right? That's and right. So we've got a midterm in 2022. Who knows what that holds, but fair enough. So the president talked about lowering the corporate rate. I guess you're telling me that in a divided Congress, <laughs> not likely, right? Confirm I mean, that. I didn't mention that one. Well, there has been some talk of lowering the corporate rate, but it's from 21% to 20%, which is a one-point cut. And, you know, it's funny because the backstory to that was that originally the TCJA corporate rate was 20%. And everyone, uh, you know, it was widely reported that that was the preferred number for President Trump. And the reason that was moved up to 21% was in order for it to become effective immediately. So that was something that everyone was surprised about, that it would have to tick up. So that's really the only corporate rate cut that has been specifically identified. There are some other items, you know, like uh, Made in America credit and other, you know, tax policies that have been discussed somewhat. But the corporate rate cut, that's the one really identifiable rate cut that the administration has been talking about. And that's going to be extremely difficult for many reasons in a divided government. It's going to be really hard for members to vote for another corporate rate cut especially given the current climate when there's a COVID relief bill that may or may not be negotiated. So it's really going to hinge on whether or not other individual priorities have been tackled before this decrease of the corporate rate cut and, you know, revenue constraints. For each point, the rule of thumb is $100 billion. Now, that's a lot of money to spend on a one-point decrease. Um, whether or not that would even move the macroeconomic needle, we don't know. So that's another little uh, roadblock for that corporate rate reduction. It's hard to conjure the scenario whereby House Democrats would vote for that. Like, What would they need to get to agree to that? I can't think of it. Nothing jumps to my mind. So I agree with you, Jen. I think that's a pretty far bridge to try and consider. I'll just leave with one last thought then on one other thing that the president has talked about, which is reducing capital gains. He's talked about indexing capital gains rates. Now, again, like the corporate rate cut, that's just not going to go, I don't think, in a divided Congress. The only way that happens, I guess, is if the White House thinks that they have the executive authority to do it themselves. They've sort of hinted that they think that they do. There's some broad skepticism out there that they might, but that would be one other thing to look for in a second Trump term, I guess, is whether or not possibly they could get that through. The capital gains rates did not go down even with single party control. 
Fair point, right? Republicans had the whole tax code open, could have done anything that they wanted to, and they didn't touch capital gains rate. Okay, well, that's really all for today. I'd like to leave you with a couple thoughts then. Look, one thing to remember in presidential tax plans. First, the president doesn't write the tax law, right? Congress writes the tax law. So we can take these directionally, but not necessarily as gospel. Having said that, though, it's also worth remembering that every president, back to Ronald Reagan, has enacted a major tax bill in their first year of their first term. And in the case of Reagan himself, he also enacted, as we said, I think in a previous episode, a major tax bill in his second term. So either way, whether we have a Biden win, in which case we tend to expect another bill, or if we have a Trump win, we could theoretically have another bill. It's worth just remembering that there is this dynamic that presidents do come back to tax over and over. You know, it's an interesting observation. What is this history of always doing tax legislation, especially in the first year of a presidency, really tell us about tax? I think it says this. Look, new presidents come to office with a finite amount of political capital to carry out their priorities. And trust me, there are many, many priorities for a new president. There are so many campaign promises made and promises to fulfill. So then you ask, why does tax always seem to make it to the top of that list? And I'd argue it's because taxes are sort of the Swiss army knife of policy implementation. It's a one-size-fits-all tool of doing, often indirectly, that which you might not be able to do directly. For example, maybe you support lower taxes, and that's your reason. And maybe you don't support more spending. But what if you could spend money and cut taxes at the same time? Well, many tax cuts are just that, tax expenditures. Think of it as spending through the tax code. Do you like solar energy? Well, you might not support federal government writing checks to solar companies, but you might support giving them tax credits. You might want to support domestic manufacturing, but it's awfully hard to get the votes to send checks to U.S. manufacturers. It's a whole lot easier to get a special tax credit for U.S. manufacturing. So taxes are in so many ways a means to another end. And honestly, sometimes they're just an end in themselves. Maybe just cutting taxes for the purposes of cutting taxes. Or sometimes even raising taxes for the purpose of raising taxes. Either way, taxes can enable so many things. And it's no accident that the tax writing committees in the House, anyway, is the Ways and Means Committee, providing just that, the ways for and the means for almost everything else. Well, with that, we'll part ways for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon.